40 here. Probably wondering, 40, what the hell are you doing? Well, I'm sitting in the morning sun, and I'll be sitting when the evening come, watching the ships roll in, and then I watch them roll away again. Yeah, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay, watching the tide roll away. Oh, I'm just sitting on the dock of the bay, wasting time. I left my home in Los Angeles and I headed for the Sydney Bay because I've had nothing to live for and look like nothing's going to come my way. So I'm sitting on the dock of the bay wasting time. Looks like nothing's going to change. Everything still remains the same. I can't do what 10 people tell me to do. So I guess I'll remain the same. Yeah. So I'm just sitting here resting my bones in this loneliness. It won't leave me alone. It's 2,000 miles plus 10,000 miles I roamed just to make this dock my home. So I'm just, oh man, now I'm wet. So now I'm just gonna sit at the dock of the bay, watching the tide roll away, sitting on the dock of the bay, wasting time. Okay, have you heard about the Sam Bankman-Fried FTX scandal? And where have you heard about the names Bankman and Fried? Remember I did a big interview with Ronnie Goldman who wrote a memoir about the Stanford Law Star Chamber. And he talked about the duplicitous dealings he received from Stanford Law professors Barbara Freed and Joe Bankman. Well, you'd never guess who their son is. It's Sam Bankman Freed. He is the child of these two eminent Stanford Law professors. So let's go to the news, Associated Press. Come on, guys, I'm trying to do a podcast here. Stop getting me wet. The downfall of FTX's Sam Bankman-Fried sends shockwaves through the crypto world. New York, Sam Bankman-Fried received numerous plaudits as he rapidly achieved superstar status as the head of cryptocurrency exchange FTX. He was the savior of crypto, the newest force in democratic politics, and potentially the world's first trillionaire. Now the comments about the 30-year-old Bankman-Fried range from bemused to hostile. After FDX filed for bankruptcy protection Friday, leaving his investors and customers feeling duped, many others in the crypto world fearing the repercussions. Bankman-Fried himself could face civil or criminal charges. And we have Jeremy Allaire, co-founder and CEO of cryptocurrency company Circle, says, I've known him for a number of years, and what just happened is shocking. Shocking. Come on, guys, keep, keep the water down. I'm trying to do a podcast. I'm not sure my cheap Aussie phone is waterproof. Under Sam Bankman-Fried, FTX quickly grew to be the third largest exchange by volume. The stunning collapse of this nascent empire sent tsunami-like waves through the cryptocurrency industry. Now, I turned hard against crypto about two years ago. So crypto has seen a fair share of volatility and turmoil this year, including a sharp decline in price for Bitcoin and other digital assets for some. The events are reminiscent of the domino-like failures of Wall Street firms during the 2008 financial crisis, particularly now that supposedly healthy firms like FTX are failing. One venture fund wrote down investments in FTX worth over $200 million. Cryptocurrency lender Block FI paused client withdrawals Friday after FTX sought bankruptcy protection. Singapore-based exchange Crypto.com saw withdrawals increase this weekend for internal reasons. 
some of the action could be attributed to raw nerves from FTX. Sam, what have you done? Tweeted Sean Ryan Evans, host of the cryptocurrency Bankless, after the bankruptcy filing. The Sam Bankman Freed, right, the son of two eminent Stanford law professors, and his company are under investigation by the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission. The investigations likely center on the possibility that the firm may have used customers' deposits to fund bets at Bankman Freed's hedge fund Alameda Research violation of U.S. securities law. So Patrick Hillman, Chief Strategy Officer at Binance, FTX's biggest competitor, says... This is the direct result of a rogue actor breaking every single basic rule of fiscal responsibility. Early last week, Binance appeared ready to step in to bail out FTX, but backed away after review of FTX's books. The ultimate impact of FTX's bankruptcy is uncertain. This failure will likely result in the destruction of the currencies at a time when the industry could use a vote of confidence. Won't someone provide a vote of confidence for crypto? So Corey Clipston, CEO of Swan Bitcoin, who for months was raising concerns about FTX's business model, says, I care because it's retail investors who suffer the most. I always thought it was women and minorities who suffer the most. And because too many people still wrongly associate Bitcoin with the scammy crypto space. So Clipston is publicly enthusiastic about Bitcoin, but has long had deep skepticism about other parts of the crypto universe. Bankman Freed founded FTX in 2019 and grew it rapidly. It was recently valued at $32 billion. The son of Stanford University law professors who is known to play the video game League of Legends during meetings. Bankman Freed attracted investments from the highest echelons of Silicon Valley. Sequoia Capital, which over the decades invested in Apple, Cisco, Google, Airbnb, and YouTube, Described their meeting with Bankman Freed as likely talking to the world's first trillionaire. Several of Sequoia's partners became enthusiastic after Bankman Freed following a Zoom meeting in 2021. Several more meetings, Sequoia decided to invest in the company. I don't know how I know, I just do. Sam Bankman Freed is a winner, wrote Adam Fisher, a business journalist who wrote a profile of Bankman Freed for the firm. That article, published in late September, has now been removed from Sequoia's website. Sequoia has written down its $213 million investment to zero. Pension fund in Ontario, Canada, wrote down its investment to zero as well. Till last week, Bankman Freed was seen as a white knight for the crypto industry. Whenever the crypto industry had one of its crises, Bankman Freed was the person likely to fly in with a rescue plan. When Online trading platform Robinhood was in financial straits earlier this year, collateral damage from the decline in stock and crypto crises. Bankman Freed jumped in to buy a stake in the company as a sign of support. What a mensch. When Sam Bankman Freed brought up the assets, bought up the assets of bankrupt crypto firm Voyager Digital for $1.4 billion this summer, brought a sense of relief to Voyager account holders whose assets have been frozen since its own failure. That rescue... Oi, I'm trying to run a... Come on, guys. I'm trying to run a very respectable podcast here. Please keep the water disruption to a minimum, particularly as my Australian cheap oppo phone is not waterproof. FTX's failure started off the cryptocurrency news outlet Coindesk published a story based on a leaked balance sheet from Alameda Research. 
The story found the relationship between FDX and Alameda Research was deeper and more entwined than previously known, meaning that FDX was lending high-quality quantities of its own token FTT to Alameda to help build up cash, sparked mass withdrawals from FDX, causing the crypto firm to experience a very old financial problem, a bank run. Now, FDX created a worthless token out of thin air and used it to make its balance sheet appear more robust than it really was. As king of crypto, Sam Bankman-Fried and his influence was starting to pour into political and popular culture. FDX bought prominent sports sponsorships with Formula One Racing. They bought the naming rights to an arena in Miami for the Miami Heat. They ran Super Bowl ads featuring Seinfeld creator Larry David. He pledged to donate one billion toward Democrats this election cycle. His actual donations were tens of millions tens of millions of dollars. Prominent politicians like Bill Clinton invited to speak at FTX conferences. Football star Tom Brady invested in FTX, as does, as did his supermodel, soon-to-be ex-wife, Giselle Bunchen. Bankman Freed has been the subject of some criticism before FTX collapsed. He was increasingly vocal about the need for more regulation of the cryptocurrency. Many supporters of crypto oppose government oversight. Now FDX's collapse may help make the case stricter regulation. One of those critics was Binance founder and CEO Chang Peng Zhao. The feud between the two billionaires spilled out onto Twitter where Zhao and Beckman Free collectively commanded millions of followers. Zhao helped kickstart the withdrawals that doomed FDX when he said Binance would sell its holdings in FDX's crypto token FTT. What a shit show and it's going to be crypto's fault instead of one guy's fault. Zhao wrote on Twitter on Saturday. Oy vey. Oy vey. So here we have what seems to be a fraud of epic proportions. And the parents of Sam Bankman-Fried are Joe Bankman and Barbara Fried, right? the star antagonists in Ronnie Goodman's memoir on the Star Chamber at Stanford Law School. Remember I interviewed Ronnie a few months ago? There may well be criminal liability here. Right? There's no evidence that Joe Bankman is criminally liable, but he was deeply involved with FDX, right? Certainly possibly is deeply involved with FDX. What exactly constitutes deeply? He's one of the leading authorities in financial regulation and tax law. At a minimum, his involvement will be considered highly embarrassing and discrediting and a pox upon Stanford law. So Sam Bankman-Fried donated tens of millions of dollars to democratic causes and candidates. Some of this went through a Bay Area PAC, Mind the Gap. Who started Mind the Gap? His mom, Barbara Freed. Fox described Mind the Gap as a secretive group led by Stanford University academics. So the PAC's raison d'etre is stealth, just like liberalism. Uh, liberalism does not claim to be another partisan ideology, it claims to be the transcendence of ideologies. It is just pragmatic and freedom-loving and tolerant and kind. So this all coheres pretty well with Ronnie Goodman's memoir and his struggle against the liberal elites. So maybe Joe Bankman and his wife Barbara Freed are capable of exactly what Ronnie Goodman attributes to them in his memoir. Now, you may not remember my stunning interview with Ronnie Goodman. It was the interview that, uh, honestly, it set, set the internet on fire. 
and I would love to play it for you. Who can remember where they were when they first saw this? Today, I just read a very compelling new book called The Star Chamber of Stanford on the Secret Trial and Invisible Persecution of a Stanford Law Fellow. The author is Ronnie Goodman. Ronnie, where did you write this book? Where did I write it? I wrote it in uh, various places. Uh, Its very beginnings uh, were actually during the time related, though that was was still... uh, in Coet, but you know, after after my fate was uh, sealed at Stanford, I was uh, in uh, in Israel for uh, for a few years. Uh, I have, I have uh, connections there, and I was considering living there. And I, I certainly uh, developed its foundations as well. And then the rest, uh, you know, um, since since then, you know, I was also working on the uh, companion volumes, uh, like uh, conservative claims of cultural oppression. As I, as I know, which is actually uh, significantly longer than the published memoir. And I had to do that as well. So, you know, I think there were there were a number of years where I didn't work on the book at all. I was just working on the uh, theoretical uh, theoretical stuff. But uh, once that was in good enough shape, uh, I turned my attention fully to the book, I would say probably since uh, maybe fall... Uh, 2017, I was uh, doing that exclusively uh, from, a, from a writing point of view, and I just uh, and that was that was that was done here in uh, in, in New York. I moved back to uh, New York around uh, around 2013. So I guess I gave you both the uh, the where and the uh, and the when. Yeah, and I'm going to encourage you to look at your cam a little bit more. Okay, to, yeah, sorry about yeah, that. This not, is, uh, no worries. Yeah, is it, is it good now? Yeah, yeah, that's better. So, sure. so I get the, get the full well, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't, wasn't uh, missing the microphone, but it is designed no. to catch my voice. So, yeah. And so, tell me, why did you write the book? Well, you know, I, I think uh, I'm going to give you an answer. I, I mean, we we'll probably conceptualize the answer on a number of levels. So let me start with one that's uh, consistent with the uh, the introduction of the book. I, you know, I I, I, I start off by uh, quoting that paragraph from. Uh, Rousseau's uh, discourse on arts and sciences, the the, the origin of, uh, of intellectual life uh, and uh, intellectual achievement originates in our uh, our vices and uh, not our, our virtues, and uh, like pride being uh, foremost among those those vices. And I think that's uh, that's certainly true on uh, on some level because at at the time at uh, at, at Stanford, you know, I was uh, committed high hell or high water to this. Uh, so if any people had read this book, the, the, the Star Chamber at Stanford Law School, all right, billions of dollars may have been saved. Right? People would have realized that maybe something fishy and dishonest was, was going on if they had just seen the deviousness with which Ronnie Goodman had to do battle at Stanford Law School. This whole FTX fiasco may have been avoided and uh, you know, thousands of lives would have been spared tremendous suffering. If only they'd been tuning in to the 40 show. Right here at the, the 40 show, we're not afraid to peer into the abyss of liberalism. We're, we're not afraid to do, to do battle with the, the dominant ethos of our time. We're not afraid to take on the dominant institutions and power centers and ideologies that rule our world. Right? And 
It's a shame more people weren't watching the 40 show. They could have been alerted to this FTX breakdown years ahead of time. Think of all the suffering, the distress, the dislocation. Oh no, here comes a wave. I'm going to get it now. I'm going to get it now. Oh, okay. Oy vey. Oy vey. Okay, let's, let's batten down the hatches. I'm just trying to run a very high-quality podcast here in bloody Sydney Harbour. No, stop, stop, stop. No, no. I'm trying to reveal the iniquity and perfidy and the, the, the violence and the microaggressions and the macroaggressions inherent in our system of liberal hegemony. And kind of kind of bloke getting get an even break here. All right, so Ronnie Goldman. All right, he warned us about this. This research project, which I was I was hoping would uh, open some doors to an academic career for for reasons I, I, I described uh, throughout the memo. It it didn't, but I think I was uh, too proud to surrender to fate. So yes, you know all of the usual avenues for communicating my ideas, uh, you know, had been had been cut, cut off. You know, obviously I could, you know, post stuff on academia or SSRN or... So why were they cut off? Because the liberal left controls the cultural means of production. And so the rest of us, you know, have to live outside the pale. Like here I am outside the pale, sitting on the dock of the bay, all right, yeah, the, the, the liberals control the high grounds of culture. They control the cultural means of production. You know, I'm reduced to you know my tiny little YouTube channels and my tiny little Odyssey and Rumble channels. But I've been trying to warn people about crypto and the deviousness inherent in the system of liberal hegemony as manifested at Stanford University. How long have I been quoting Ronnie Goldman? Right? For six months, I keep referencing his book, Conservative claims of cultural oppression. I, you know, I've done more than anyone to say that the the liberal emperor is naked, but they wouldn't listen to me. Uh, or whatnot, but that's that's not going to get anyone's attention. So I, I, I realized that I would I would not surrender to fate. So how to proceed? Well, you know, I I, I write this is the uh, the story of a term paper that came to life. Uh, the the paper the paper that was first written for Stanford before it had to become about, about Stanford, and it, it it had to become about Stanford because that was the only way of uh, resuscitating my research agenda by uh, tying me in in some way to the prestige of of that institution. Which I mean, I had to some extent just by virtue of having studied there and, and had the fellowship, but I, I would have to do so. I would. Have- so I too have been inside. The walls of hallowed academia. I was a student at UCLA. My father did two PhDs at the prestigious Michigan State University and the prestigious University of Manchester. So I've been inside these hallowed halls, and yet I have emerged outside to tell you the truth about what's really going on here. Do I take that to a different level in order to actually uh, disseminate my ideas? So it was it was uh, pride and uh, and necessity. Tell me a little bit about your ancestors and your parents. So, uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a convoluted story, and I you know I, I can't fill in all the gaps, even though I've, I've asked about it. So uh, I was okay. We're going to fast forward there. 
get back to the so, good stuff. So much, you know. I, I, I understand that, of course. You know, if you've got a uh, you know historically oppressed group, that 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 group identity is going to be more uh, you know inevitably salient uh, to them. And you know, I and so I know it's it's kind of facile just to say you know just just be colorblind. So I wouldn't want to urge that in a in a fa- in a facile way. But uh, on the other hand, I wouldn't want to uh, discount it as a, as an ideal uh, altogether, and which which you know the diversity movement certainly uh, risks risks doing. Okay, there are hundreds of law schools in the United States. What sets Stanford Law School apart? Um, well, you know, in in, in, in in a sense, and this is something that I address in the. Uh, in the preface, uh, you know, um, anything that sets it apart in my in my in my experience, and I don't, I don't want to speak outside of, the, of that experience. So, you know, today, if somebody were to ask me, "Oh, I could go to Harvard, or I could go to Stanford," you know, what do you think? I, I would be in no position to say, "Well, you know, Stanford has clinics A, B, C," and I think that's that's you know, cutting edge and innovative. That may well be the case. It's probably the case, but. That's not something uh, I know. I, I can I can speak to uh, personally, so I, I can I can only address that from the point of view of, uh, of, of of my experience as related in the memoir. And in connection with that, I would say that in terms of the underlying targets of my critique, which are the cultural pathologies of academia, nothing sets it apart as far as I can. So did the cultural pathologies of academia I predispose Sam Bankman-Fried to his nefarious activities with FTX. Did he inherit cultural pathologies from his Stanford Law School professors? And did he subsidize these cultural pathologies by donating tens of millions of dollars to Democrats? Tell there is a common academic ethos which is going to pervade uh, different institutions. The fact that they are ge- geographically separate is going to have uh, minimal or no effect on that. So, from the point of view of my negative critique, I say you know nothing sets it apart. Though it is set apart in my experience, given given my. So I think Stanford Law School would be regarded as one of the top five law schools in the United States the nature of my allegations, and I, I try to frame that in a positive way, which is this is the place where uh, my thesis came to life, where the, uh, the higher truth of conservative claims of cultural oppression was articulated three-dimensionally and autobiographically, and, and certainly, you know, notwithstanding the antagonism, you have to give credit to uh, anyone who can help bring that about, which the, the memoir, which the memoir does. How would you describe your politics? For example, I could describe my own as paleoconservative. How would you describe yours? You know, I mean, as far as uh, if you were going, as I, as I say in the book, you know, if you were going to go down a uh, a checklist of, uh, of of issues, I would be, you know. By and large, on 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 the liberal side, you know, I have uh, my my worldview is maybe it's not really scientific, but it's scientific. So, for example, I have a hard time uh, believing that a a, you know a a three week old fetus has any quality uh, that's worthy of a moral uh, regard. If you had you know a more I guess a more metaphysical.
you might see things. So yeah, a traditionalist thinks that a three-week-old fetus does have tremendous moral worth because it doesn't just see the fetus in a buffered, you know, individual one-off sense. It sees it as a proto-human, right? It sees human life, you know, on a on a trajectory, on, on a path. So the the liberal worldview is buffered, strategic, autonomous. Believing itself capable of rationality and, and uh, you know, with, with natural predispositions towards that which is good, the traditionalist worldview is that people have natural predispositions that are probably stronger towards that which is bad. That they are not buffered, but they are porous, right? And what goes on outside of us influences us, and that we're not just who we are at a particular snapshot in time. We are part of a tribe, a process, you know, things larger than ourselves. We are porous, meaning things come into us in our lives that affect us. And what's going on with you affects me. Uh, as far as economics, uh, there are really very little truck with, um, with conservatives. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, government regulation can go too far in certain instances. So this is Ronnie Goldman the author of the Stanford Law Star Chamber, who I interviewed on my website six months ago, and I haven't stopped talking about his book, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression, and I probably brought it up 30 times on my show about the pathologies of our reigning liberal left hegemony. And the two principal antagonists of his book on Stanford Law School are the parents of Sam Bankman-Fried, the guy who, who gave us the multi-billion dollar FTX scam and crypto meltdown. Disputing that, I would say, you know, for example, in, in, in France, where uh, it's, it's almost impossible to fire somebody without going to court and, you know, justifying it rigorously, that's, that's ah. not a good thing. But the idea that, you know, if we have some form of universal health care or universal health insurance, and somehow that is the, uh, you know, the road to serfdom. Uh, or that we're going to lose uh, the virtue of of self reliance, you know that I find kind of uh, kind of absurd. I know that, and I, I think. And we would be up to have that. The United States would have national health insurance. One, it was a unitary rather than a federal system, and two, if it didn't have an enormous underclass, it was going to suck up most of those health dollars. And if we didn't increasingly realize that our our government and our health system is going to actively discriminate against white people in favor of its you know, favorite pet groups, right? So the, the vaccine was to be rolled out in a racially discriminatory way, racially discriminatory against white people. So once we saw how our federal bureaucracies and state bureaucracies and local bureaucracies wanted to roll out COVID vaccines in a racially discriminatory way against white people, why then would white people you know, want to fund national health insurance, which would be disproportionately used by minorities? Probably paleo conservatives might, might share that sentiment as, uh, as well. You know, as, as civilization has developed, we have to do fewer things for, our, for, for ourselves. Yeah, it used to be if your farmhouse is burning, you've got to put it out. There's no fire department. If somebody steals from something, someone from you, very likely you're on your own or your clan is. So this is Ronnie Goldman, author of Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression. And he's just making the point that he is, generally speaking, on the left. 
that he produced the most powerful critique of the, the liberal hegemony that dominates the cultural means of production that I've read. On your own. So the whole process of modernity is actually relieving individuals of individual responsibilities for certain things so they can turn their attention to other things. And I think something like uh, guaranteed health care and, and some level of the welfare state generally is basically just a, a, a rational extension of that. Mm-hmm. And would you attend a same-sex wedding? Yeah. And did you feel any in, internal revulsion towards same-sex marriage? No. I, I mean, it, it's like, I mean, it's obviously, you, you know, um, since, you know, to the extent if you're heterosexual, yeah, you, you may find the idea, okay, so uh, you know, that, yeah, a man long that. time ago, back in grad school at, uh, at Indiana, he uh, actually, uh, he wasn't necessarily, didn't necessarily feel like that way at first, but he was kind of a bit of a lost soul as, as well, you know, bit of, you know, abused as a, as a kid, and he was, for, you know, he was for a while uh, considering... Okay, let's get the context here. Had a strong internal revolt. Any kind of moral judgment. And what about, or let's say you had a friend who you discovered had just a really strong internal revulsion towards same-sex marriage, couldn't even articulate a good argument against it, just had a strong internal revulsion against it, and yeah. on that basis would not attend one. What would you, your reaction to such a person be? Well, I, I've had such a friend, and it was a, it was a long time ago back in grad school at, uh, at Indiana. He uh, actually, uh, he wasn't necessarily didn't necessarily feel like that way at first, but he was kind of a bit of a lost soul as, as well, you know, bit of, you know, abused as a, as a kid, and he was, for, you know, he was for a while uh, considering... Uh, well, let's fast forward here. ...real then, but that, that was added and praise, and, and believe I'm not repelled by, uh, repulsion by, I must I disagree, but real. Uh, it's reputation. Oh, I, I mean, I, I, think, I think it's... it's my reflexes. What is Stanford Law School's reputation among elite American legal scholars? Say that again. What is Stanford Law's reputation? Oh, I, I, think, I, I, think, I think it's, it, it's certainly uh, in, in in the very top. I would imagine the top three or four. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, U.S. News and World Report. It's usually ranked. Uh, Number number two or three, you know, behind Yale or behind Yale Stanford. Now that is kind of a, a crude measure, and certainly most legal scholars would, you know, reject that as, as amateurs. But and then they have their own ideas about, you know, uh, who's doing the most cutting edge uh, research. That's going to vary from person to person. But yeah, but Stanford is certainly uh, very much up there. You know, as I say in the book, so it doesn't have the same level of, you know pop culture recognition as Harvard versus maybe, you know, and all sorts of movies. Uh, I went to Harvard Law School or, or even Harvard generally. But uh, in terms of its copyright reputation, I think I think it's right up there. Okay. And what were your expectations going into, so you entered Stanford Law second year, you, you did your first, first year of law school at the University of Texas. So That's right. What were your expectations for your presumably two-year experience at Stanford Law? Well, I didn't. I didn't necessarily have expectations, but I had a had a goal. And you know, the perverse thing is that I, I actually 
realize the initial goal or the initial stage of my goal very effectively as i as i you know explained you know i had a great time in texas uh learned a lot but from the point of view of academic careers you know uh stanford and and, and kindred places were were optimal so you know i went in there um I, you know i wasn't uh, didn't really think about what to expect i just thought this is what I need to do, and then you know, I actually did, did pull it off uh, with a fellowship. Afterwards, things went awry, of course, as I relate. But um, you know, um, it was—I I, I would say certainly there was, uh, in terms of the law school itself, putting putting aside you know my research and my own ambitions from the point of view of just experience. Certainly, uh, Texas was was better in the sense that I was in the same cohort. With everybody, everybody was a first year, so I made friends. I had my 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 group. By the time I arrived at Stanford, you know, it was second year. Uh, people already knew each other, and yeah, you know, you get back, you could work your way in to a certain extent. But it wasn't okay, like that. Fast that. And so, and, well, you know, it's it's um, Stanford. It's because of, of the fact that I transferred. What was the genesis of your your work on conservative victimology? Well, you know, it's it's um, I, I think it, it started even though you know as I, I, I describe my views as uh, overall uh, overall liberal, I, I certainly had a uh, still had a, a visceral un, un, unease with it because you know I, I do think that you know even though ultimately. Policies. I'm, I'm going to be liberal. It's, it's certainly the case that uh, liberalism sort of exiles and uh, excommunicates aspect of uh, human nature that are, you know, for better or ill, uh, natural. And okay, so liberalism's excommunication of uh, human nature did that perhaps ill prepare Sam Bankman Fried for his FTX business? Right. Is, is Sam Bankman-Fried's failure with FTX and this spectacular meltdown, is this a negative reflection on liberalism, given that you know, two of the premier exponents of liberalism are his parents, Stanford law professors Barbara Fried and Joe Bankman? So did their devotion to liberalism uh, blind them to basics of human nature? Right, so liberalism believes that people are basically good, which is, I think, absolutely insane. And how on earth anyone could believe that human nature is basically good? And so, did this blindness play a role in the FTX meltdown? Was their son like, morally crippled by being raised in this matrix of liberalism, which has this delusional perspective that human nature is basically good. And, uh, it's, you know, some people supersede, I don't want to say supersede, because that's a, that a, a judgment, but I say, you know, spend those uh, to use a neutral term more effectively than, than others, and they become liberals, but it's not necessarily reasonable to expect that of of everyone, and sort of, and certainly uh, liberal, other in principles, liberals are compelled to to recognize that how people are differently situated for a, a, a variety of cultural and uh, biological and accidental reasons and to think. So conservatives you know, believe in the importance of tradition, that uh, tradition 
acts as a barrier against all sorts of things of which we're not even aware. And that when you break down these barriers, such as against same-sex marriage, you invite in all sorts of unknown pathologies and contagions. So, kind of think of this 19th century British writer who talked about the, the closed gate. When a man finds a gate across his path, the, the liberal impulse is to just tear that gate down without asking, like, what's the purpose of the gate? Like, maybe the gate was there for a good reason. And so tradition has all sorts of gates and blocks on human behavior. And tradition is not based on first principles philosophy. It's not based on, okay, because we believe X, therefore we're going to institute rituals A, B, C. Rather, the rituals and perspectives of tradition, you know, evolve to meet very real human needs. And they evolve out of human nature and tried and shrewd ways of organizing human community. While liberalism is kind of a top-down, first principles ideology that claims not to be an ideology. That anybody, you know, could just... Anybody just had a, a ah. clean intentions or a good heart could sort of snap their fingers and, or would snap their fingers to adopt the liberal worldview that was that was kind of uh, facile to me and, and at first that was just sort of a, a, a very visceral set no I'm trying to run a quality podcast here guys stop stop the madness well, not someone stop the madness I'm just trying to run a high quality podcast and these boats go s- speeding by Huge splashing waves. My cheap Oppo phone isn't even waterproof. Stop the madness. Uh, and and I, I pursued the project in order to... That was Sam Freed's FTX boat, man. Sam bloody Bankman Freed just went by and his FTX boat just, just, must have just sped by and sending these crazy waves up here. And I'm just, I'm just an average bloke, right? I'm just a simple Jew hanging out here on the rocks Hanging out here on the dock of the bay. Just, uh, I got nothing better to do. Just hanging out on the dock of the bay, just just whistling and singing a happy tune and discoursing about conservative theories of uh, cultural oppression. No, I haven't been attacked by magpies yet. No, haven't experienced attacks. Ah, bloody hell, I'm trying to run a bloody... I'm trying to run a bloody podcast here, guys. And, and look at the madness. Like these crazy waves are placing my, my cheap Aussie phone in danger. That they're, they're taking away from the high quality of my productions. Like, I'm, if I'm known for anything, I'm known for high quality, high technical quality productions. And the madness of these waves that are splashing all over my bloody podcast... It's, I think it's the, the liberal hegemony. They control not just the cultural means of production, but they, they control the waves. They control the tide. And here I am sitting in the dock of the bay, just, just doing nothing. Ah, bloody hell! Just trying, to, just trying to do, you know, a very conventional podcast about conservative claims of cultural oppression and how Sam Bankman-Fried of this FTX fiasco, right? He is the son of these famous Stanford Law 
right? He's the son of these famous Stanford Law graduates, right? And where did you hear about Joe Bankman, right? Where did you hear about Barbara Free? You heard about them for the first time on my bloody show. Oh, right? I told you there was something rotten in Stanford Law. I told you the problem was with our liberal system of uh, thought control, of the liberals control the means of production. Sam is one of the bad ones. Well, he's the child of these liberal Stanford professors who did our boy Ronnie Goodman wrong. I've been telling you about Ronnie Goodman's classic work, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression. I've been banging on about this for six months. If only people would have listened to me six months ago, they would have recognized the rottenness at the heart of this system that spawned the demon seed of Sam Bankman-Fried, FTX, and the tens of millions of dollars that he gave to Democratic candidates. And this Bay Area Mind the Gap political action committee that is steered by Barbara Freed, Joe Bankman, and other Stanford professors. I told you about the, the rottenness in the system. Like, I did everything I could. Right, you heard about these people here first. I said, watch out, guys. There's something wrong with liberal hegemony. The libs control the cultural means of production. Tulsi Gabbard hosting Tucker right now. You went on vacation at a good time. <laughs> I tried to warn you. I said, watch out, guys. There's, there's rottenness here at Stanford Law. I told you about the Star Chamber at Stanford Law. How many times have I mentioned Ronnie Goldman's name? Right? Hundreds of times on this show. How many times have I praised his book, Conservative Theories of Cultural Oppression? Right? I will not stop speaking the truth. I don't care if the waves and the tides here at Sydney Harbor try to get me. I don't care if they send, right? You think these are birds? These aren't birds. Right? These are remote controlled, uh, what do you call those things that fly about and drop bombs? Right? Those aren't real birds, mate. That's the, the liberal hegemony, owners of the cultural means of production, trying to shut down my bloody podcast because I'm getting too close to truth. Right? They're trying to drown me out. They're trying to drown out the truth here. I told you there was something rotten in Denmark. All the billions of dollars that could have been saved if only people had paid attention to my show, to my blog post, lookforward.net, right, to all the blogs I've made about this book, about Star Chamber at Stanford Law School, with my interview with Ronnie Goldman. And I'm not going to let them drown me. I'm going to speak, keep speaking out until the last wave you know, finally crushes me. But I'm determined to make my stand. Here I stand, guys. I can do no other. So help me God. Oppo phones with the element. I bet that phone was 120. Yeah, that phone was 120 US, which is like 200 Australian. I bought it on my last trip. But we're not even counting the $40 that I spent for 80 gigs of data. Like, I really would like to give you the high quality technical experience of my iPhone with the Shure mic extender, right, that high quality visual and oral experience. But I can't because data is like six times as expensive if I do it through my American phone plan. So 
I'm just stuck here on my cheap Oppo phone, trying to warn you all about Sam Bankman-Fried and the FTX meltdown. And this is the Ronnie Goldman interview, which uh, should have notified us that something was rotten here. I did this interview about six months ago. Articulated, you know, and it was it was so visceral. In fact, that you know, even even uh, a year into the fellowship, I just, as I describe, I'd only just begun succeeding in, in articulating. Just begun. What are the skills that make for a good lawyer? Well, um, certainly. Um, uh, this is this is underrated, but certainly a uh, a tolerance for uh, for tedium, yeah, and to sort of just be able to embrace, get this sense of oh, I just finished the task, I you know I wrote a letter to the judge uh, complaining that the other side hasn't produced their just so tedium was it just too much tedium, filling the FTX filings that lulled people to sleep that this was all a scam. Right, let's. Uh, Let's skip ahead to, here. Hey, you give me uh, doing even. Okay, five-minute summary uh, of your book, preferably without repeating points that we've already covered. Um, that is something I would have a very hard time uh, doing, even though obviously I understand that listeners want to hear it, and and, and the problem. It is is this? Hopefully, this will give them, you know, some kind of, of indication. Okay, so let me. What I can say generally, yeah, it is. It is sort of a fall from grace. That sort of, I, I was able to create sort of high hopes among the faculty there, but owing to uh, my conflicts, I, I would say no, not with them personally as individuals, though it led to that too. But with the norms of academia that uh, really so his principal conflicts were with the parents of Sam Bankman Freed meaning Stanford law professors Joe Bankman and Barbara Freed Cotto and Paul show bitter at Bob's admit it what if demographics are turned voters into gimme goodies type so Paul, Paul Gottfried he's about to make or is he making his final show ever for Joseph Cotto so what led to the dissolution of this winning pair Joseph Cotto and, and Paul Gottfried why is this the end of Cotto Gottfried? Inquiring minds need to know. You know. Progressively soured, though in very subtle ways that went unacknowledged at the time. And that eventually led to the uh, conflagration, which I, uh, I describe as my, my, my gaslighting. And, you know, the problem... And who principally carried out this gaslighting, right? There's principally his Stanford Law School professors... I've still got my kippahs, keeping George here in Sydney. Right? The conflagration and the gaslighting was principally done by two Stanford law professors, Barbara Freed and Joe Bankman, the parents of Sam Bankman Freed. So Ronnie Goldman says there's something rotten in the system. I picked up his book. I said, there's something rotten in the system. Art Bell, you want me to accept no more FTX donations? You want me to stop riding on the, the good ship FTX lollipop? You're really asking a lot, mate. But uh, for the cause of truth, I'm willing to do it, mate. For the cause of truth. Uh, what a beautiful day here. It's about 70 degrees, overcast, sitting on the dock of the bay. With, with any kind of summaries, you know, sort of on, you know, on the one hand, I can say, uh, well, you know, it's a, a lot of it is a critique of certain. Uh, 
the intellectual norms of academia, which are, in fact, quite uh, intellectually stifling and reflect a certain conservatism by the liberal elites, which is ultimately hypocritical given the uh, demands that they, you know, impose on society. So, you know, if I were to say that, you know, some people might, might, might find that it's somewhat interesting. Uh, other people might find it fatal. They say, you know, well, yeah, we know there's a lot that's irrational about academia. Are you really telling us anything new? So if I put it that way, you know, I'm not going to get that much reaction. Now, the, the other poll of what the memoir is about is, is, is the gaslighting. And as, as I, you know, you said, it, it sounds kind of incredible. Uh, to you because I'm saying that there was a form of communication, uh, but solely through ambiguation and intimation and illusion that we had we had a form of communication that uh, it was ultimately okay. So it was the same type of gaslighting done by FTX? Did Sam Bankman-Fried become excellent at gaslighting through the influence and example and teachings of his parents, Joe Bankman and Barbara Fried? Right? Was he born and raised? and suckled on gaslighting, just like what uh, Ronnie Goodman here experienced during his time at Stanford Law from Sam Bankman-Fried's parents, Joe Bankman and Barbara Fried. Subterranean and had to be decoded against this background, which all parties understood and none knew. You know, if I put it that way, it's going to sound either really weird or not going to probably won't know what I'm talking about. When I talk about, if I say that, the, the school website itself embodied... So remember when there were blokes saying that uh, you know that other other financial scams were, were going on. What's the, what's the big one from two thousand eight that uh, that Bernie Bernie right Bernie had that uh, multi multi billion dollar scam and uh, people have been warning about it for years and the like the SEC or the FTC had investigated and uh, Bernie Madoff all right he, he was. He got away with it for years and years and years because he was just so good at gaslighting, right? And Sam Bankman-Fried got away with it because he was so good at gaslighting. And our liberal elite get away with things because they're just so good at gaslighting. And how did Jeffrey Epstein get away with it for so long? He was so good at gaslighting and he had all these enablers on his side, just like Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, a, a message which was at the the epicenter of this whole thing well that's if i just put it that way it's gonna sound it's gonna sound crazy so you know but the only way to put yeah instead of calling him sam bankman freed call him robert bankman so how did robert bankman get so good at robbing right did he hone his skills under the conscious or unconscious direction of his stanford law professor parents barbara freed and joe bankman those two aspects of it together and realize that the book is neither fatal nor crazy is to is to read it and so of course i'm i'm asking when i ask people to read it i am asking them to undertake a certain a certain leap of faith and you know maybe this will help persuade them to do that okay if only other people are taking this leap of faith that i took six months ago right thousands of you know lives could have been preserved in financial health you wouldn't have this multi-billion dollar meltdown of FTX, all right? We told you, we told you there was something rotten here. But, but it is a leap of faith, you know. 
Yeah, and, and from, from my own experience, I've lived my life as a dissident and a heretic who's been thrown out of almost every community I've ever joined. Yeah, I read about that. And it is no fun. It's absolutely no fun whatsoever. And yeah. I can't overstate the toll of having people around you think you're crazy. The, absolutely. That just took an enormous toll on me. Right, and all the people who said Bernie Madoff is running a scam, right? They were told they were crazy. People who said that FDX was a scam, right? People told them that they were crazy. Ronnie Goldman says that uh, there's a star chamber going on at Stanford Law School. People said he was crazy. People, Ronnie Goldman wrote this profound book, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression, and he was dismissed as crazy. I reached out to about 30 law professors who were mentioned in Ronnie Goldman's book, The Star Chamber of Stanford Law School, and only about two responded to me. So the inference was, he's crazy, not worth responding to. That, that right. practically drove me crazy the more other people regarded me as crazy. I'm just curious yeah. about your experience. Well, I, I, I totally agree with that. And in fact, um, if we talk about, uh, let me, let me, let me uh, add an addendum to uh, what I earlier said about why I wrote the book, in a sense, because the book is really, it is a shield against that charge. Okay, you could, you could say that, and, but I can say read the book. And if they say you're crazy, I can say, why exactly don't you accept argument A, B, C, and D? And, yeah, you know, um, I had a, one of my editors, she was really, she was really great, uh, but she was, she was, you know, skeptical of the, the you know, the facially outlandish uh, contentions. But then, you know, when I confronted her with specific arguments... You know, it's not like she could refute them, but she just said, oh, well, well, you know, you have the ability to argue that the moon is made of made of green shades. So, yeah, you can make these arguments and I can't refute them, but I still I still don't believe you, which is fine. That I can deal. At least now I have a shield that they can say I can say, look, is this do you really, do you really think a crazy person could write this on any conventional definition of of crazy? You know, a non-metaphorical definition. I always wanted to say, obviously not. And and the, the book is, I hope, what establishes it. Now I can't overstate my. Okay, Jim Bowden says, Luke, sorry for not getting back to you. Let's uh, read Jim Bowden's message here. Currently too busy running matters after Christmas. Like to catch up with you. Looking at Anzac Bridge, you must be somewhere around Balmain. So I am currently about a mile, mile and a half south of Sydney Harbour Bridge. So I'm sitting on the dock of the bay, all right, and explaining to Sam Bankman-Fried, robber man, right, the operator of FTX, this multi-billion dollar crypto scam, right, his parents are two notable Stanford law professors, Joe Bankman and Barbara Fried, who I... I started talking about six months ago and I read Ronnie Goodman's book here on the Stanford Law Star Chamber. His two principal advisors were Barbara Freed and her husband Joe Bankman. So Ronnie wrote Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression 
He twigged there was something rotten here. Designed to sit at the cool kids table. Like, I love the cool kids. I love the successful. I mean, I love that stuff. I really, 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 really want to belong to the cool kids. There's only one thing in the world that I want more, and that is to pursue what I think is true and to say what I think is true. Yeah. I, I'm just curious, do you, do you also have a significant, you know, through the... You know, nose against the glass, kind of looking in at the cool kids' table, uh, desire, or has that been come uh, muted in you? Look, in in, in in a sense, you know, I, I certainly have, I have those thoughts sometimes because I think, you know, okay, I've got a, I've got a, you know, good paying job, That's you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fine, I'm not, I'm not working at Starbucks, I'm not, you know, picking up the garbage, but I certainly see that, you know, a lot of, the, you know. A lot of former law students my age, or even significantly uh, uh, younger, certainly from you know Stanford, are, are certainly further ahead in their careers than I am. You know, they're, they're, they're partners at firms as opposed to an associate, a senior associate. They're partners at, at, at firms where they're really making hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars each each year. I you know I have a, I, I, I look back, I say, what? Why am I not there? I have the same degree. I had the the right the right grades. You know, I can you know if we are if we're in court and, and they write a motion to dismiss, I can defeat them. So I, I you know I can I can stand toe to toe to them. So but why am I not sitting at the uh, you know, the cool kids? Yeah. So success, economic success, social success, success with women, isn't uh, necessarily primarily based upon merit, upon intelligence, upon wisdom, upon righteousness. It's uh, primarily based on how well you get along with people, what your people skills are like, how well you live in community, in addition to merit. Now, there are some things where it's all merit. So if you're going to be a winning chess champion, that's all merit. Are you going to be a great physicist or economist or biologist? All right, that's going to be overwhelmingly merit. Ah, bloody hell, I'm trying to run a high-quality podcast here. Stop the madness. Stop the waves. Tide, go away! I'm trying to, I'm trying to break important intellectual ground here, but the, the liberal hegemonists are sending the, these waves and, and birds at me to try to shut me down. But I will not be silent. I'm going to speak truth to power. Uh, table, but I, I try to say, you know, in in the end, yes, you got to embrace your faith. You try to, you know walk those those two worlds between, you know, adapt, uh, establishing a, a palatable place in society, but uh, also uh, pursuing your heart's passion, which is a book. And, you know, I've, I've tried to affect uh, a compromise between those two uh, to, as best I could because, you know, I, I didn't really have a choice in the matter. Now, I, I'm thinking off the top of my head, so for the normie who, who's watching this and thinking okay is there a larger point here other than this individual's guys you know fight for his reputation one way that i would summarize the larger point is that the western world is largely run by a liberal left consensus and this liberal left consensus is as flawed and deserving of critique as any other attempt at a worldview. That that would be one way I would summarize your scholarship. Is that fair? Yeah, it, it's it, it's it certainly does because you know at the end of the day, 
even if it's it's more true than other worldviews, it's still going to have a monopoly on on, on 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 truth. And you know, given its its prestige, you know, and given the subtlety. And this is the, the great point of Ronnie Goldman's book, the the liberal left worldview that dominates most of our institutions is not presented as just another partisan worldview. It's presented as something that transcends worldviews, that transcends ideologies. It's just pragmatism and kindness and freedom and love, right? It's just about pursuing, you know, what is empirically true. It's not, it's not another partisan system operating for the advantage of a select few. When, in truth, it is just another partisan system based upon a particular faith commitment about human nature that the self is buffered, is basically good, is strategic, autonomous, uh, capable of being rationally directed and uh, overcoming its basic drives through the force of reason, as opposed to the traditional sense of self, which is porous, meaning that what happens outside of me affects me, what goes on with you affects me, and that we need tradition to bar the door to all sorts of things that we can't articulate or don't even know. Yeah, that's prejudices. Uh, because there is a lot of truth there too, but there's, there's, it's also false in, let's say, in certain subtle ways, like when I, when I discussed uh, transgenderism, just as, as, as one example, it certainly, you know, merits critiques. And, and I, I kind of always felt like, you know, in law school, you've got lots of people who are like, you know, they're writing, you know, Articles, you know, defending certain, you know, international uh, human rights norms, uh, you know, right to abortion, various demands for various kinds of, uh, of equality. And I, I always thought it's not that I opposed that necessarily, but I felt that they were uh, reaching for the, uh, the low hanging fruit. The, the higher hanging oh. fruit is, is the elites, the people who, you know, have the cultural power. Uh, you know the, the might of Stanford, as I as I as I describe it. That that always had a, a greater greater allure to me. That was a certain kind of of, of, of hubris, perhaps, and it, it, it led to the tumult uh, I I describe. But uh, yeah, I, I have again. Like, maybe it comes back to this primordial, you know, rebelliousness. I, I can say it doesn't matter, even if you have. You know, seventy-five percent of the truth, or 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 whatnot. I'm not going to rest on my laurels. Okay, so to be continued. This is a, a great story, and uh, I'll do a lot more on this later on. But uh, I'm off to continue my walkabout. Bye bye.